Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Katie Orr. As more people get vaccinated, excitement is growing for returning to things like going out to eat or getting on a plane for that long-delayed trip. But how do we do that while also protecting the most vulnerable among us? One idea already being adopted by some countries is a vaccine passport. It would allow those who can prove they have immunity more freedom to do things like travel, go to the movies, and return to work. Critics say passports are unreliable and could leave vulnerable and low-income communities behind. The pros and cons of vaccine passports, that's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. After a long year of being stuck at home and separated from family and friends, a lot of people are looking forward to what they'll be able to do once they're fully vaccinated against COVID. Personally, I've been dreaming about a beach vacation and maybe catching a movie in an actual theater without my kids. But even though a lot of people want to get back out into the world, there's concern about how we can do it safely while still protecting the most vulnerable among us. One idea that's gaining traction, vaccine passports, an official certification that makes it clear you can go to places like restaurants and theaters or get on an airplane without posing a risk to others. But passports are also raise questions about privacy and whether they leave behind marginalized communities. In this hour, we get the lowdown on vaccine passports. Joining us is Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious disease expert and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and David Studdard, professor of medicine and law at Stanford University. Uh, David, I want to start with you. There is a lot to talk about. First of all, Explain the concept of a vaccine passport. What is it? What's it designed to do? When can I leave my house? I think your intro there, Katie, was was fairly accurate. The idea of a passport is, uh, it's it's a loose term. It's really a, a form of certification that says the bearer of this thing has completed vaccination. Uh, it's most likely to appear, I think, in electronic form, like a QR code on your phone. Uh, but it could be in paper form too, because uh, one in five folks don't have uh, mobile phones. Uh, so the idea is this would be something that you carry with you, and it would certify your ability to participate in certain kinds of activities. The big question is, which activities and who is going to be demanding it? 
How would you go about getting one? I mean, we all saw the rush for a vaccine and and having to wait in line and wait your turn and the anxiety around that. Would this be similar or do you think it would be more seamless? Well, I hope it will be more seamless uh, because there will be an instant demand for it if this becomes a necessity for uh, activity participation. I don't think we know yet exactly how it will be made available to the general public and how the information on who is being vaccinated will be linked together to be able to verify that people who hold these uh, certifications are in fact vaccinated. I think the federal government is trying to figure that out right now as are states. Uh, It's very difficult for private actors like employers or uh, entities that own theatres and recreation events to figure this out on their own. There is going to have to be some guidance and some technical know-how from government here. Uh, Dr. Monica Gandhi, as we've seen with a lot of this discussion around COVID, first with testing, then with vaccines, now with potential passports, there are always questions about ethics and how the most marginalized among us are going to be able to access whatever it is we're, we're talking about, in this case, passports. Lay out some of the ethical issues that these passports bring up? Right. Um, so, you know, essentially at this point, by the way, um, it's, I think it's very premature to talk about passports because there are people desperate to get the vaccine who have not been able to get the vaccine yet. We're, we're sort of in this transition period in terms of availability. And so um, right now we're already having a kind of two-tiered system where those who are vaccinated feel more safe and those who aren't don't. And so this would be something we have to remind ourselves. It's when for the future that um, once anyone who's had a chance to get the vaccine gets the vaccine. Um, But you're right about equity. I mean, essentially when we've looked, you just pointed, put your finger on it, that every during this pandemic and any infectious disease pandemic, it is these pandemics have always affected the poor disproportionately in this country, black and brown communities disproportionately. So less access to testing, less access to, um, uh, you know, not being able to work because essential work was, uh, is how to get food on the table. And because of that, this is a pandemic that affected poor populations disproportionately. And now we're watching vaccine equity happen, play out in a large scale in the United States. And as you, know, it's not unexpected, but those who are, and again, in black and brown communities, are being prioritized less. Those who are white and have the means somehow have figured out how to get the vaccine first. So this is happening. This has always happened with infectious diseases. So we can never set up a system by which you get a passport and you didn't even get access to the vaccine. Um, That would be tremendously unfair. So at some point, we we need a major reckoning with how we manage infectious disease pandemics, which has been very inequitable in this country with HIV and with COVID. Well, and Monica, you bring up a good point that there are still many, many people who are waiting to get their vaccines. Um, as of today, the New York the New York Times reports about thirty percent of adults in the whole country have at least one vaccine. Those are people eighteen and older. We do have some news on the vaccine front. The CDC says that new studies suggest um, the vaccines, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, are highly effective at preventing people from becoming effective or transmitting uh, COVID. And the Pfizer uh, vaccine, they're saying now, uh, Pfizer is saying that their studies show it's okay 
for adolescents between 12 and 15. Uh, So, Monica, how do you think those bits of news change the game? Yes, I think this is an incredibly important question. So let's start with this transmission question. You know, actually, we always thought vaccines were going to decrease transmission. Um, It was just that what we should have said in the headlines is the clinical trials didn't tell us if they will decrease transmission because we didn't swab people regularly in the clinical trials. I know that's a very long headline, but essentially after the clinical trials, and remember, they're so old news at this point, that was December 2020, um, we have scads of data that show that vaccines decrease transmission. The reason the CDC said it yesterday is their own study showed it. On March 29th, just two days ago, there was a very large CDC MMWR study that looked at healthcare workers, first responders, getting the vaccine around the country. And in a nutshell, to tell you about that study was pretty incredible. Uh, This is what's called the real world effectiveness of the vaccine, as opposed to what we saw in the clinical trials. That word is called efficacy. And these vaccines work extremely well. To put it extremely simply, before vaccination in that study, 161 out of 1,000 got infected in the healthcare workers' first responders. After vaccination, one in a thousand could get infected and they were, uh, we didn't even know if they were sick or if they could pass it on. So one in a thousand as opposed to 161 in a thousand. That's how incredible these va- uh, incredibly well these vaccines work. And that study also showed reduction, not just in getting infection and feeling unwell, getting disease, we call it, but also because there was asymptomatic swabbing in first responders also is very difficult to get the virus even in your nose after vaccination, which is why the CDC director, Dr. Walensky, yesterday said, yes, they actually stopped transmission as well. Again, we had a lot of data from Israel, the UK, other settings, but the CDC said it yesterday based on their own study. So what this means is those who are vaccinated are very unlikely to be able to pass it on to others. That does have implications for safety in society, right? Because not only are you protecting yourself, this argument came up with, uh, with mask wearing. Not only are you protecting yourself from uh, the infection, you're actually protecting others by getting vaccinated. And when you have a process by which you're protecting yourself and others, then these questions of ethics come up about um, not mandating the vaccine, but really encouraging the vaccine. And that's actually how all vaccines work. It's not like COVID was any different. The reason we ask people to get vaccinated from measles and mumps and rubella and, and meningococcus in children, for example, is partially this, quote, herd immunity concept, right? You're protecting others and you're protecting yourself. Should businesses require proof of vaccination or immunity to COVID-19 to allow entry? What do you think? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Bill asks, how does this differ from the vaccination record card I got when I got a shot? Uh, You're probably familiar with one of those, you know, my kids, for instance, I can go to Kaiser, pull up all their shots and, you know, pull up a list of all their shots. So, David, how is this different than that? Well, I think it's a similar idea. That's a piece of documentation that clinics and providers are handing out as people are vaccinated. I have my own sitting in front of me right here. But I think the, the concern about it is it's not really in a standard format. It doesn't have the authority of official documentation yet. 
but the move towards uh, passport or some more formal certification would essentially elevate this to the status of, uh, you know, a formal document. You might think about it as, you know, when you go to get your license, uh, you get initially some uh, some paperwork that stands until you get sent your formal ID card and that becomes your uh, license, driver's license from that point in time. You know, I think there will be a similar transition stage here. But gathering all that information from all the vaccination sites around the country, from the counties and from the states, and ensuring that the right people are given the right authorization is a gigantic undertaking and one that I think uh, the government will need to to guide very carefully. We have a comment from Morgan. Uh, They tweet, I'll feel much safer taking my much-needed beach vacation if I know everyone there has been vaccinated. I fully support vaccine passport requirements unless you have a valid medical reason from a doctor saying you're unable to get vaccinated. David, that brings up another excellent point. Do you think there will be exemptions for people who legitimately can't get this vaccine? Well, I think Dr. Gandhi bring, bring a really important point up initially, which is while we're in this phase where not everyone has access to vaccines, it is a bit concerning to imagine that lots of activities are going to be conditioned on this kind of certification. Uh, I think it's morally questionable that just because you weren't in one of the top tiers for vaccination, that you should be uh, disadvantaged. But when we move in the next month or so to a point where vaccines are more widely available, Um, I think there'll be more enthusiasm uh, for these kinds of passports. And in in that situation, uh, I think many people will have the kind of assurance that your listener is talking about if they're in a location uh, and they can be uh, somewhat confident that those around them um, are also protected. What do you think? Should businesses require proof of vaccination or immunity to COVID-19 to allow entry? Give us a call now. 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Facebook or Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. We're discussing vaccine passports with Monica Gandhi, professor of medicine at UCSF, David Studdard, professor of medicine and law at Stanford University, and joining us now to share the latest on health documentation currently required for domestic and international travel is Catherine Hamm, former travel editor of the Los Angeles Times. Welcome, Catherine. So tell us, first of all, Remind us, what do we need right now if we're going to get on a plane, you know, domestic, international travel? You need a lot of patience and you need to be able to (laughs) investigate for your own because the rules are not uniform across the world. There are countries that are open. There are countries that are closed. There are countries that are open that require a negative COVID test or a vaccination. But the number of 
permutations and combinations of factors can be overwhelming. So you really need to do research before you make your final decision on going just to be up on the on the latest. And things do change uh, fairly quickly in this field. So how do you figure out what the latest rules are? Where can you go? I think probably the best place to go is to, if you're going to a foreign country, to go to the embassy or consulate page. I was looking up Israel this morning, for example, and it has fairly extensive information on what the rules and regulations are. And I have found that with most of the embassy or consulate sites that I've visited. A good place to start is travel.state.gov. That's the State Department website. And to go to the country information uh, button on there and then look up your destination. From there, for specifics, go to the embassy or consulate. Do you think that these rules that we're currently experiencing with flying, are are they going to stick around if these passports become more of a mainstream thing? Will they be like, will passports be additional to these rules? I would think that if if passports become common and then given the number that are under development, that seems likely, I think that those will be in addition to the rules. Now, uh, will we keep people off of planes because they haven't been vaccinated? We don't know. It's the same question that we could ask of, do we keep people out of restaurants if they haven't been vaccinated? We simply don't know at this point because there is no case law. Uh, So we're not quite sure what's going to happen. And the only thing apparently in the pandemic that is certain is that there is uncertainty and confusion about what we can and cannot do, particularly as it relates to travel. I want to go to a call now. Nancy from Menlo Park. Go ahead. Oh, hi. Um, I fully support um, a vaccine passport, but it seems to me like it would be better to start with requiring businesses and employers uh, to have their workers vaccinated in the workplace. When I get on an airplane, for example, I want to make sure the flight attendants and even the pilots have been vaccinated. They're sitting on, you know, they're routinely there and I'm in their space. Same when I go into a restaurant, the person serving me, I want to make sure has been vaccinated. So, it just seems like that would be one more layer of getting people back into, you know, normal routines and, you know, spending money and feeling comfortable and also slowing the spread if um, it was initiated first uh, at the, you know, corporate level um, and also even in public, you know, for public institutions. And, you know, I think all teachers, I don't know how it works now. Again, obviously the the legalities have to be worked out, but you know, if I had a kid and I was sending my kid to school, I'd want to make sure the teacher was vaccinated as well. So that's my, you know, comment. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Nancy. That raises a good point. And Catherine, I wonder, from the travel industry perspective, have you heard about any efforts to make sure uh, that airline employees perhaps are, you know, among the first to receive these you know, so-called passports or verification that they are safe? I have heard that some airlines are requiring the vaccine for their, uh, especially for their cabin crew, but really for all their employees. Um, And that is, again, an area of legal uncertainty. There has been case law in the past that has to do with the requirement, for example, to get a flu shot when the flu was uh, the biggest medical concern that we had. Um, Can you do that? Yes, you can. But again, it's legally questionable about whether uh, it is completely not only ethical, but legal. 
That was Catherine Ham, former travel editor of the Los Angeles Times. Catherine, thank you so much for your time. David, I'd want to throw that question over to you. Uh, do you think it is legal for companies to require their uh, employees to be vaccinated? Yeah, well, that's a question that that a lot of us public health, health law folks are talking about right now. Um, and it's, it's a complicated question. Um, the, the first thing to say is that we should probably try to separate passports as an idea from vaccine mandates. Uh, you know, at some point they kind of come together when you're talking about conditioning activities and those activities are essential activities like work or um, uh, education or access to healthcare institutions and you're saying that you need a passport for those things, then effectively you've crossed over the line into a territory that is about vaccine mandates. And I think most public health experts at this point in time are not in favor of the idea of vaccine mandates, certainly not, not while they're uh, not universally available, but even after it seems a questionable idea and not one that many of us think will be productive in the long run. But that said, the question of what private employers may do as opposed to the government uh, is, is a more fraught one. It, it is the case that in certain contexts, we do have government authorized mandates. Uh, we look, for example, in many states at, at schools uh, and daycare centers. There is a list of vaccines that we insist on for kids before they can attend uh, those settings. And they're pretty well accepted. So there's some, there's some precedent for that. Um, among private employers, it's usually actually easier to insist on these kinds of things because we're dealing in a world of sort of free contractual arrangements. And, and as long as employers aren't being discriminatory and not violating disability discrimination law, they can insist on certain things of their employees. We see, for example, in some states, hospitals insist on um, uh, certain injections for uh, healthcare workers. But the difficulty at the moment with the vaccines that we have is that they have been approved by the FDA under what's called an emergency use authorization, which is a sort of short form type of approval, not the full process of approval that we insist on for uh, regular vaccines and um, biologic products. So the legal question at the moment that, that has uh, attorneys and, and, and judges sort of talking and wondering is, is it possible to insist on vaccination, even by private employers, when we're in this status of a sort of interim approval for the vaccinations. And I don't think we know the answer to that question. That is not well tested in the courts. In several months time, when I expect that full approval, at least for the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines will be in place, um, it will be somewhat easier to have that conversation and there will be a little bit more certainty, at least for in private employers, about their ability to insist on certain uh, requirements for their for their workforce. Monica Gandhi, I, I want to ask you, where do you think those who have already had COVID, the actual disease, and have the natural antibodies you get from having that disease, where do they fit in here? Should a positive test from when they were sick count in lieu of a vaccine? Well, this is an incredibly good question because uh, I, I, you know, people can feel sort of offended that do you need a vaccine or will my natural immunity um, get me the same thing? 
The problem is it's actually not easy to um, measure natural immunity or vaccine-induced immunity. And what I mean by that is I really want to say this simply, but there are two ways that you develop immunity um, through your antibodies and then what are called your cell, cell-mediated immunity. And cell-mediated immunity, uh, T-cells basically, are actually the main way that we fight viruses. And those are more durable and the most important way that we fight viruses. And they actually have measured them in the vaccine trials. And we develop wonderful T-cell immunity against um, COVID-19 after vaccines. And we also develop wonderful T-cell immunity after natural infection. Antibodies, depending on the severity of your infection, uh, actually can fade after time. But antibodies are incredibly simple to measure. And T cells are very hard to measure. They take uh, this very fancy machine called flow cytometry and you need a special lab and we don't have commercial tests for T cells. So actually there's no way out there in the world to do a simple test and say, oh, you had natural infection to um, COVID-19 a year ago. Your antibodies may have gone away, but I can't tell you if you have T cells, but you're likely immune. So the problem with this idea that you do a lab test and measure immunity is it's unfortunately not going to, it's not going to work. Um, only if our antibodies stayed up for a lifetime. So it's not going to work. So then that means is that a vaccine-induced immunity is pretty simple because you know you got an injection. Someone, you can really prove that you got an injection. And that's why showing a vaccine card is easier than showing that you've had natural infection. Um, And this is a great, the reason it's such a great question is we've never rolled out the vaccine at the height of a raging pandemic. Let's just remember that when measles, mumps, rubella, Influenza 1918, usually the vaccine is developed much later. And unfortunately, we had to go through the terrible pandemic and develop natural immunity. And then the vaccine calmly came up and we could vaccinate the public. We're, we're like, some of us are naturally immune. Some of us are vaccinated. Some of us are unvaccinated. This is such a transition period. So um, the reason vaccine passports are coming up is it's the only true way to prove it. Uh, I will say as a healthcare worker, I am obligated actually to get vaccines. I have to, I have to jump through quite a, quite a hoop, a few hoops if I decline to get the flu vaccine. And I've been a healthcare worker for a long time. And this is every hospital I've worked in. I have to wear a mask all winter and I have to document a medical or religious reason. So there, there is a precedent for requiring vaccines, like David said, in the context of being a healthcare worker. I want to uh, take some calls now. Uh, Kyle in San Jose, go ahead. Yes, hi. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Okay, great. Um, Yeah, so I am against the vaccine passport because I think the reasoning of it is a little bit contradictory because you're saying, you guys have mentioned that studies have shown that if you had the vaccine, you obviously don't you're less likely to get sick and you don't transmit the disease as well, right? And so who are we really protecting if our most vulnerable people were, for one, the first people able to get vaccinated? And it seems like you're morally excluding people that haven't got vaccinated from things by, so you're you're protecting them by excluding them, as well as I think it's also a little, brings up a little bit of like a, HIPAA thing, too, when it comes to, you know, going to private uh, establishments or companies, whatever, or going to, say, Target or anywhere, right, to uh, exclude them by uh, vaccines and having them know, you know, if you've been vaccinated, et cetera. So that's 
that's at least my opinion. I think it's a really slippery slope, and I think it's a little bit contradictory of who we're protecting by excluding, essentially. Oh, great. Uh, Thank you so much for your comment. You know, Daniel writes, um, this will definitely open a Pandora's box with regards to civil rights and equivalent access to public and private businesses such as ADA. We will see litigation across businesses for not providing access due to not being vaccinated. I think that is a really good segue to bring in uh, our next guest, Alexis Hancock. Uh, She is a staff technologist with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And Alexis, I understand your organization has some concerns about these passports as well. Um, what is one of your your main objections? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Great. Well, one of the main issues is what the caller just brought up is where digital vaccine passports kind of build an infrastructure and culture of mass surveillance that we're kind of worried about seeing a precursor to, seeing that storing your medical information outside the context of the relationship of, you know, say your school or your place of work or international travel, where we've seen previous presidents for proving that you've been vaccinated for certain diseases versus now where the scope creep we're seeing is beyond international travel, beyond workplaces and schools, and it's going to restaurants, talking about getting services in libraries and access to that. What does that look like? And how far does this mission creep spread? So we're definitely worried about that aspect. The second part of that, it kind of perpetuates the social inequities that we've already been seeing. We've, seen, we've been seeing disparities since this pandemic has started. We've seen disparity between people who've gotten COVID and died from it. We've seen disparities with people with testing. And now we're seeing disparities with vaccines. They're not widely available yet. So requiring vaccine passports will only exacerbate those things. Not everyone has a smartphone. We have to think about these things. Not, And we've already seen people not be able to actually access vaccine appointments because of technology barriers. So we feel that mandating a permanent a permanent system like this with no plans in place on what happens to this data once this is a quote unquote over or we, we reach herd immunity, where does the data go? How will the data be stored? Can we request the deletion of these systems and data once this is over by proclaimed by health officials? What happens to that? So that along with your medical privacy being expanded outside with private companies with vaccine passports. What does that look like in the long run? And we're very worried about that. Right. I think it really is interesting, you know, that as we see with so many things, it might be a government function, but as you mentioned, a third party might run the app that you show to, you know, demonstrate to show your passport. I mean, is that how big a concern is that? We're really concerned about that because, it could step outside of HIPAA regulations. It won't necessarily be the the medical record that you, you have to keep confidential between you and your healthcare provider and you decide to share the information upon your own volition. Uh, we're So outside of that, where you're storing medical data and processing medical data with companies like, you know, a lot of the you know, solutions I've seen are with people saying they're thinking about privacy, they're thinking about security, or they're using different technologies to ensure this. But at the same time, federal data privacy laws don't exist in the U.S. in the way that it would in, say, Europe. They have GDPR. In California, we have CCPA, which is a new law that only got rolled out in the past few years, but it only was 
went into effect the beginning of 2020. So we have very variable privacy laws when it comes to our data. And so leaving it up to the company saying that, you know, we'll take your word for it. I'm sure my medical data will be safe. And some people out there may be saying, well, it's just showing that I'm vaccinated. What's the big deal? It's the, it's the fact that you're sharing medical data outside the context of the normal protections. Alexis Hancock is a staff technologist with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Thanks so much. Let's uh, get in uh, one more call before the break. Uh, George from Sunnyvale, go ahead. Hi there. Uh, I'm a participant in a community chorus in Saratoga, and it's mostly seniors. And we've uh, shut down, like everyone else, for the interval for the past year. But we're getting to a point where Uh, A number of our members and some of our subgroups, all of the members, have received both of their vaccinations, and we've been able to get together and do some uh, singing and uh, under some spatial distancing and things uh, with confidence. And we're looking ahead toward uh, a performance season that we would normally do with like three concerts with – typically in those circumstances, a couple of hundred people involved. And we've been trying to figure under what circumstances, what rules we might set to make it possible to do that with some confidence. And one Thank of the subjects so much, that came up was George. vaccination cards. Vaccination passports. A lot of people hoping to get back to normal. Um, what do you think? Give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. We're discussing vaccine passports with Monica Gandhi, professor of medicine at UCSF, and David Studdard, professor of medicine and law at Stanford University. Monica, talk a little bit about how long you think we might have to use some kind of vaccine passport if it comes in, it comes to fruition. Am I going to have to use this forever, or is this just something that will I'll have to use until we have herd immunity? whatever that means. Yeah, well, I think that's a great question that the caller brought up because, um, you know, the way to think about herd immunity is actually not uh, in any way we c- can we look at a virus in a test tube and say, we're going to need 70%, 80% of the population vaccinated, 90%. We actually have to look at the real world stage because we don't know what that threshold is for each virus. And if you look at the real world stage and how these vaccines are playing out, Luckily, there are a couple of countries that are way ahead of us in vaccination, and we can look to their epidemiology and give us a hint of what it's going to take to reach herd immunity. So I'll talk about Israel for a minute because 
they made a deal with a with a um, vaccine company and they started vaccinating super fast. So you mentioned at the beginning of the program that we're at about 29% of us in the U.S. who have gotten one dose. They are twice that. 57% of their population has gotten one dose of a vaccine. And they have very few cases and they are testing. They had 128 cases yesterday. What does that mean? I think it could mean that herd immunity is reached sooner than we think, um, which is something like 60%. So what does that mean? What that would mean is we're going to know herd immunity when we see it because our cases are going to be so low. That's what herd immunity means. And if 60% of us need to be vaccinated, then those who who opt out of vaccination, children under 11, you mentioned at the beginning of the um, of the program that the Pfizer trial did uh, just get announced today for adolescents between 12 and 15, but actually children 11 and younger is not a very large segment of our population. Um, we may get to herd immunity prior to this requirement that the that you know everyone needs to be vaccinated, and thus that that will sort of obviate these discussions in a way because if if someone declines vaccination, that is of course their right. Um, and it is a privacy concern. And going back to the nursing home question that your caller just asked, that was a very important question because those are mass vaccination sites. Those are places that got vaccinated first, long-term care facilities and healthcare workers. And those are sites where the cases, there was data yesterday, have plummeted by 96% in nursing homes. So it shows that if you have mass vaccination, you don't have a lot of cases. That's where things become safe. And that's where things like um, people socializing, singing together, all of it's going to be possible, even without us all getting vaccinated. I want to go to a call now. Christine from San Jose. Go ahead. Hi there. Yes, thank you. This is a great discussion. I was just considering um, the civil liberties of all of us here, Americans, who can choose to have a vaccine or not. Uh, I have a coworker. He's a young twenty-something, and he is choosing not to have the vaccine. Would he? I agree with the caller that the other caller that was talking about how, you know, we this would be just another discriminatory practice among many that are already happening that we're that we've been seeing surface over and over again during this pandemic. So that's just my comment. Thank you. Great, Christine. Thank you so much. David Stuttered, you have actually done some polling on whether or not people would support these uh, passports, these vaccine passports. What have you found? Well, I think you're getting a nice taste of it from your callers here. The public appears to be very divided about the use of these kinds of certifications. Uh, We did a poll back in the summer. It was before the vaccines were really among us, uh, but we were asking about immunity either from vaccines or from uh, recovered prior infection. And what we saw was that the public was almost exactly divided on this. Um, About half thought this was a bad idea and about half thought this was key to opening things up again. But the really surprising thing, Katie, was that the opposition and support did not track the usual lines of agreement and disagreement in our community. It wasn't that conservatives were against and progressives were for, or that uh, people of colour were against and and, and others were for, uh, nor was there a clear divide across uh, uh, rich and poor in this survey, which was nationally representative. Other surveys have come along since, asking about vaccines in particular, and they find similar division. 
Now, I think this is changing right now because three or four months ago, this was sort of a pre-political issue. It wasn't uh, in debate in Washington or in state legislatures. The, 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 the parties haven't really got hold of it as an issue. That seems to be changing now with some opposition to the concept among conservatives. But I think what we see is that the, the community really is very divided about this and, and, and understandably so. I, I, was, I was really taken by your caller's remarks about privacy. I, I think privacy concerns are real here, but the civil rights issues do not all point in one direction. It's not a case of just saying we should ban passports because they, are, um, they violate people's civil rights and, and, and encourage strongly or force people to get vaccinated. The truth is that the people who have been vaccinated also want to have restrictions lifted. And if they don't pose a threat to the community, then that seems legitimate. Uh, you know, it's a very core principle of civil rights law that we shouldn't place more restrictions on people than are needed and required uh, as the risk determines. So, so this is precisely why it's a complicated issue. This is precisely why people disagree. Uh, it's, it's a hard question. Yeah, and sort of to that point, Anne tweets, even if it isn't legal to mandate staff vaccinations, I would favor airlines or restaurants who promoted the percentage of their staff vaccinated. For instance, I would choose an establishment with 90 percent of a vaccinated team over one with 60 percent. I think, David, that raises yet another issue. Would companies even be allowed to say, you know, 90 percent of our staff is vaccinated or or has this passport? Because that is another level of exposing people's information to the public. Well, again, this is all new territory. I think if if it were a statement not about individuals, but about a collective group, there probably would be no legal barrier to doing it. I think it again comes back to the question of who is doing this privileging and and what activities are we talking about? I think when we're talking about the government implementing a program that relates to essential activities like work and education, there are both legal questions and ethical questions there. And I don't think that's what we're going to see in the United States. Israel has moved to a system like that. I don't think we're going to see the same thing here at the state or the federal level. If we're talking about allowing employers, firms, businesses to have some leeway to decide the extent to which they'll insist on this, uh, and particularly if it relates to non-essential activities like going to the theatre or to a sporting event or to a restaurant and a bar, then I think that's, that's a harder case to oppose in my view. I think that we allow that kind of thing for lots of activities in our in our society. And if there's a degree of tolerance for how much risk different establishments are prepared to accept for their own staff and variation in what they're prepared to say to the public about what, what guarantees they make, I think that's probably okay. We need government to regulate that very closely so that there's not invidious discrimination or it's used as a pretext for excluding certain groups. But that might be the equilibrium point that we reach here. David writes, uh, might a vaccine mandate give rise to a parallel unvaxxed economy of haves and have-nots? Monica, what do you think about that? 
You know, um, so I agree, uh, as we talked about at the beginning, that that certainly <laughs> there are people who are clamoring and desperate and getting online for their vaccines. So, so right now that we do have a have and have not society because we haven't um, given full uh, supply access. At the point at which everyone who wants a vaccine can get a vaccine, which would take, you know, depending May 1st, say, takes a month for the first dose, then the second dose takes June to accomplish beginning of July, everyone has received a dose who has received full vaccination who wants it. Then at that point, there becomes a question of have or have nots because right now, you know, we don't have the supply. And then um, it depends on, on what threshold it takes to reach herd immunity. The have nots or those who chose not to get vaccinated may have very little exposure to SARS-CoV-2 because it's such at low rates circulating in the community. I actually predict that will happen. But um, it is there. There is these kind of privacy. Everything that that people have been saying is is absolutely accurate. As a physician, um, I'm not allowed to tell people anything about my patient's uh, medical condition. There, there is this HIPAA rule, um, and so I can only see three places where it seems more there's a precedent for this kind of vaccine passport. One is healthcare worker settings where I'm, I've chosen to be a healthcare worker. So I've chosen to keep my patients safe with vaccination. The second is schools. And that's, there's some issues around that because measles, mumps, rubella, um, meningococcus affect children more than COVID does. So we have to think about what age of schools. And then the third is travel as your um, LA Times travel uh, expert told us that, that let's be clear that there have been precedents for travel since before uh, the early 2000s, that countries will not let you in sometimes um, if you have not gotten certain vaccinations. The, the classic one is yellow fever vaccination, which is why the documentation got known as the yellow card. We are talking about the possibility of vaccine passports with Monica Gandhi, professor of medicine at UCSF, and David Studdard, professor of medicine and law at Stanford University. Uh, I want to get to a comment now. Jonathan writes, one advantage to having vaccine passports is that it may encourage some people who believe that vaccines are harmful and refuse to get them to actually get them so they have access to more places. Uh, we also have a a caller, Joseph, in Oakland. Go ahead. Good morning. Um, you, you've alluded to this, but having been in 149 countries and having had to prove in many countries that I've had a yellow fever vaccination, it's a little naive for a lot of people to suggest that these things aren't going to happen. Because just like a passport, very few people, believe it or not, in the country have a passport. But if they want to have a vaccination passport, they ought to be able to get one, especially if businessmen who travel the world are going to go someplace where they're not going to get in, say Japan, because they don't have a vaccination passport. So it ought to be available, but it doesn't have to be something where every person has to have one. Uh, thank you so much uh, for that, uh, Joseph. I want to get, uh, David, your quick response to that. Is that practical uh, if only the people who want the passport get it? Yeah, I think this comes back to the issue of sort of essential versus non-essential activities. Uh, for most people, travel is a non-essential activity. So I agree with your caller that uh, if if there were requirements in the travel area, 
that is not going to infringe on civil liberties and choice in quite the same way as it would in, in other sectors of our economy. I actually think travel is sort of the impetus for all of this in, in many countries. The EU uh, and the UK uh, have been, and Australia actually, have, have really been developing their passport idea around travel. So I suspect what we will see is some of the technology that comes out of the travel sector, some of the protocols and some of the rules uh, will then spread to other sectors. But, but travel creates a fairly immediate need. I mean, Dr. Gandhi, I think, spoke convincingly of, of uh, this very hopeful idea that we might have herd immunity and not need to worry about these kinds of um, uh, certifications. But the truth is, you know, millions of people come into the United States each year from around the world, and some of them will be vaccinated, some of them won't be. And even among those that are, they may be vaccinated with vaccines that are not considered um, uh, efficacious or safe from, from an American standpoint. So there is going to need to be some system to, to regulate and control those, those entrants. I want to go to uh, Travis from Oakland on the phone now. Travis, go ahead. Hello. Hi. Hi. Go ahead. Uh, I'm I'm curious, excuse me, uh, with the advent of this technology, uh, will there be other viruses or communicable diseases that uh, should be considered uh, or like what other health conditions would be relevant to uh, include in this in this type of system? And how would we prioritize this? vaccination. So I'm under the impression now that most adults aren't required to be vaccinated for some things that, uh, say, school children are required that uh, I'm under the impression are still potentially dangerous to adults. So, yeah, where, where does this go, I guess? Uh, right. Uh, thank you so much for that, Travis. Monica, I think that's a good question. I mean, it's easy to say you're going to have a passport for the next six months, nine months until we get herd immunity. But, you know, you have a feeling that there's always something else that you could use that passport for, right? It, you know, it might not be COVID, but it might be the next iteration of COVID or the next pandemic. What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, the amazing thing is about herd immunity. And I love the word herd. I really do. Because we all help <laughs> each other. So your immunity helps my immunity, helps my friend's immunity. And um and it's and it's an amazing concept, right? And so, actually, there there are, um, for example, outbreaks of measles uh, that we can see regularly if if a population um, declines to get vaccinated in this country. Uh, luckily, because so many of us are vaccinated, even if we're exposed to measles, because we're vaccinated, we don't get severe disease, and uh, we may not even know we're exposed. Um, there are more vaccine quote hesitant nations. Uh, actually, uh, in Europe, there's there's a little more hesitancy around vaccinations. So it may bring up the idea that do we as adults need to show uh, that we've gotten vaccinated against other infections? Likely not. And the reason I say that from the past is luckily enough of us are getting vaccinated that we're maintaining a very you know delicate balance of herd immunity. And I think that's going to happen with COVID. But this does bring up the important question of world vaccine access. You, David just said that people come from come here from all parts of the world. It is obligatory, I think, for the U.S. to uh, realize uh, that, that if they can help the rest of the world get vaccinated, even in, in the most selfish terms possible, that helps the U.S., right? That's literally herd immunity also applies to countries. So there are a couple of ways to, to you know, giving out vaccines that we have surplus uh, here to other countries, signing something called the uh, WHO COVID 
technology access program, which allows other countries to make it. And frankly, there are vaccines that are being made by other countries that they are making very cheap for, for other places, thank, uh, thank goodness, because we do need global vaccine equity for everyone to be safe. Um, and when David said, we're not sure the the effectiveness of those vaccines, yeah, we do need the full uh, data set on those vaccines like Sinovarm and Covaxin and Sinovac, but but they're, they're looking good so far, but we need more data on them to ensure that they're the right vaccines. This has just been a fascinating discussion. I wish we had more time, but unfortunately, our time is running short. Uh, we've been talking about vaccine passports with Monica Gandhi at UCSF and David Studdard at Stanford University. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.